The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the art of social diplomacy at the White House. For dignitaries around the world, it's the hottest invitation you can hope for. A state dinner in your country's honor at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But the first family can't possibly pull it off on their own. There's an incredible White House staff that balances these important dinners with all the other parties they're expected to throw, like birthdays, holidays, weddings, even a prom. And as with most parties, the stories of what went on behind the scenes are the most intriguing. The thrill and privilege of being invited to the White House. It's on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Alan and I are thrilled that author Jennifer Pickens has accepted our invitation to join us for this special episode on Entertaining at the White House. She is a nationally acclaimed White House historian and expert on the essential role of the First Lady. She has a fascinating and visually stunning book out called Entertaining at the White House, Decades of Presidential Traditions. We will link to this book and her other terrific titles on our AmericanPOTUS.com website including a link for you to get 20% off this new book at Amazon.com. Jennifer, welcome to American POTUS. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Jennifer, it's great to hear your voice again. Welcome to American POTUS. I want to start today. You were, you were given unprecedented access to the White House to write this book. What kind of resources were you able to access to employ as, as you wrote it? Um, well, Alan, and Scott, thank you again so much for having me. It really is an honor, and I love your podcast. And yes, you know, I've been so blessed over the years to develop and cultivate these wonderful relationships with people that are connected to the White House. Through my first two books, Christmas at the White House and Pets at the White House, I've really learned that um, the people that work at the White House, live at the White House, between first families, staff, and more, are just really um they want to share these amazing Americana stories, and they want us to celebrate the things they've done at the White House. And so I have cultivated these relationships with Tricia Nixon Cox, who's always so kind to take my calls and tell me sort of what it's like to be a first family member living at the White House, or Roland Mesnier, the great pastry chef that served for decades. It's just been amazing. And then I felt so um, blessed when I went to the Trump administration with this idea of really celebrating the past, you know, six decades of White House history, of things that had happened at the White House. Mrs. Trump loved the idea and really opened the doors and allowed me to go up there and interview a lot of the staff that's been serving there for many decades, um, between the chefs and the different ushers. And even I got to meet one of the housekeepers and the groundskeeper. And everyone really participates in everyday life. If it's just the White House and the presidents and their routine and what they need, or if these amazing events with heads of state or thousands of people coming through at Christmas, and they want to share their stories and, and how they've worked there to make this all so successful. And she also allowed me to see sort of behind the scenes how it all came together with that last state dinner in honor of Australia. That's really neat. Huh? And you, you talk about that kind of structure of support they have for 
all these different types of events that you talk about in entertaining at the White House. Uh, who are some of those? You mentioned some, the usher, uh, the other, the, of course, the White House chef. Who's within that structure? How many, in general, how many people are in that uh, support mechanism they have there to help with all these amazing events they have to put on? Well, I mean, ultimately, I mean, as you know, it's really the first lady that has um, that, you know, she's the one in which she must balance the protocol and the precedent with her own artful intuition of every event they want to have at the White House. But she does have that amazing staff. And when you think about the White House staff, obviously, some of the first things that will come to mind are the White House social secretary or the chief of staff. And they are so helpful and so important. But really, the unsung heroes of the White House, in my opinion, are the executive resident staff, which is that small staff that you are alluding to. It's, you know, a little less than 100 people. And I think they're just some of the most amazing people in the world because they really are there to serve at the pleasure of the president, but they serve for decades. They, it doesn't matter to them if it's a Republican or Democrat or an independent that's running for office. They're there to serve and they're there because it's the people's house. And they're the ones that really are that um, carriers of that shared history and that tradition that we all love that make this not just the president's house, but the people's house. And um, it's the carpenters and the White House chief ushers and the pastry chef and, and the executive chef and all of them that serve under there that have been there for so long and um, that make each and every one of these events so spectacular. And let's dive into some of the, the specific events you talk about in entertaining at the White House. And you start with state dinner. So we'll start there, too. You, you go from JFK up to President Trump. So first question for you is what differentiates a state dinner from other White House events? Well, without a doubt, the greatest of all White House affairs is the United States state dinner. I would argue it's the most coveted social invitation in the world. I think probably the person that coined it best was our former Secretary of State, Colin Powell, when he said a state dinner is the highest social honor we can bestow on another country. It is very much sought after. And if we've honored a country with a state dinner, it means that country is in good standing with the United States. And it really is that just an ultimate event to go to at the White House. And it's one where everybody wants to participate. And, and it's just, you know, typically it varies from an administration to administration on its size. The Reagans and the Bushes and some of the more recent first families sort of love that 120 person type event that would typically fit into a state dining room. Sometimes the Obamas and Clintons would love to have make it a much grander, larger scale affair so they would have a tent out in the South Lawn where people would come mix and mingle inside the White House and then they would go outside. But they really are. I think one of the things that makes them so great is that the First Families really can have so much entertainment would love to come. And different people want to participate. Volunteers would come help um, from florists to World-renowned party planners would work. Brian Raffanelli famously worked with the Obamas. And I loved, you know, Nancy Reagan, I probably think, said it best when she said, I love giving the state dinner. I just loved it. How else could you ever give a party like that? She said to Larry King at CNN years ago. So who, who decides which state, uh, which leaders to invite to state dinners? What's that process? And, you know, that is probably one of the trickiest things that a White House will do and you're gonna, they're going to be flooded with requests from the State Department and other places as to what countries you would honor. And a lot will go into that. Sometimes I think it's a nod to the relationship a president would have with um, certain countries. Certainly, Ronald Reagan famously had his first and his last state dinner in honor of um, Margaret Thatcher. And I think that was, you know, very much symbolic of the relationship he had. Other times it'll be because of timing. It'll be, you know, a great anniversary like the bicentennial when Queen Elizabeth wanted to come to see the Forbes or um, 
you know, the oldest royal family in the world is actually the emperor and empress of Japan. They came through famously during the Clinton administration. So sometimes it'll be timing for something like that. And other times it'll be because of what's happening in the world with, you know, the a strategic ally we might need in something in a world affair going on. So, so to that, to that, uh, all these state dinners are important diplomatically, but which ones do you think in the era you, you looked at were the, were the most impactful from a diplomatic point of view? I mean, I think from a diplomacy state, uh, point of view, while they all are, as you said, historically important, I would argue the one for the Soviet president Gorbachev was arguably the most impressive. It symbolically ended the end of the Cold War. It was the highlight of the Washington Summit of 1987. And it just, it was an amazing event. And when you talk to people that were attending, people like Lynn Cheney, who was head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, was there. And she talked about the only other state dinner that really was comparable would be one in honor of Queen Elizabeth. But she would have said that that event was sort of looking backwards. And this one, this particular one in 1987 was really looking very much to our future and what was happening ahead. And I think it also proves the importance of these events symbolically. And when you look at that state dinner um, with Gorbachev, and then you think about it um, and how much Nancy Reagan really put her heart and soul. And she really famously worked so hard on these state dinners. They arguably had one a month, which is, you know... And no other first um, family had that many. And what an amazing job she did in solidifying that relationship that 17 years later, he was sitting there in the pew um, and um, honoring his friend Ronald Reagan at his funeral. And so I think that really tells you how important these are and how much can be accomplished at a dinner. And I think certain administrations really did realize how much can be accomplished during soft diplomacy. Now, you reminded me in this book that Michelle Obama hosted a different type of state dinner. Those were kids' state dinners. So what did those events entail and why did First Lady Obama make them a priority? Yeah, I loved uh, Michelle Obama's creativity with her kids' state dinners. One of her initiatives and the one she's probably most famous for is, of course, her signature Let's Move campaign. She was trying to reduce childhood obesity and encourage kids to adopt a healthier lifestyle. And part of that was her creative way of having a kid's state dinner where kids across the country would submit these recipes and you would have winners. And the winners would get to come to the White House and experience what a state dinner would be. And it was very fun and very kid-friendly. A lot of the decor and everything was inspired by the White House garden, which she liked to highlight during her tenure. And they would use presidential china, which I thought was so fun. And at each table would be a cookbook of all the recipes that had won that year. And um, you think about what goes into a state dinner and things of how they want to highlight the administration they're honoring and entertainment's part of that. And she, of course, made it kid friendly. The the Lion King would come perform. Members of the cast of Disney's Aladdin came. And it really just was a great way to kind of highlight a state dinner in a new way. Obviously, it wasn't a real state dinner. It wasn't an honor of a head of state. But lots of different first families would use the White House in that social capacity. And I often think about President and Mrs. Trump and the way they would want to highlight the military as many ways as possible. So during their last White House State Dinner in honor of Australia, they had over 150 different musicians from different branches of government come and perform in the White House Rose Garden, including the president's own Marine band that was seated on top of the Oval Office. And the guests, as they were sitting in this amazing garden, were completely surrounded by all the different branches performing the music. And you just watch the guests start to cry. It was so moving and so powerful. 
And one of the guests in the audience was Henry Kissinger, you know, mm-hmm. longtime person of Washington who had attended so many events. And he even said it was one of the highlights of his lifetime of attending at the White House. Other first ladies that have done similar things would be First Lady Nancy Reagan. You think about Nancy Reagan, you can't help um, but think about her amazing Just Say No campaign um, and really trying to help people um, with drug addiction, which I think is amazing. You know, it's a good sort of start to think about today and its history and how that's becoming opioid addictions coming back in. And we think about Nancy Reagan, and she had recovered addicts actually come to the White House to help her decorate for Christmas as a way to symbolize that they can, you know, come and participate in everything again once they get past this addiction. And so I do think it's really unique the way our first lit families would use these social events at the White House to highlight their causes. Yeah, very true. And I must say, when I read the section on the kids' state dinners, I had to imagine what I would have said as a parent to my kid going to that, the instructions I would have given them to be careful, <laughs> to not break the White yes. House china, to not misbehave yes. in any possible way. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of on a big stage there. So. <laughs> So you mentioned earlier, Jennifer, the the visit of Queen Elizabeth II during the Bicentennial, during the Ford White House. Uh, I know that we're great allies and have been for a while, but how was that kind of touchy issue approach that we were celebrating uh, beating them in the revolution and becoming independent? (laughs) It it was. And I'm glad that you asked that because I do... You know, I think sometimes now we don't talk about that as much, but for the bicentennial, I thought it was so great. One of the newspapers even reported that they were nervous. It was sort of like um, inviting your mom to have dinner to celebrate the day you ran away from home, which I thought was really (laughs) funny. Um, But, you know, Queen Elizabeth really does have this unique place in American history where she has met every president since Eisenhower, with the exception of LBJ. Um, she first attended the United States and being the president, she met President Truman. She was then Princess Elizabeth. And then the first time she came as queen was under Eisenhower. And then 20 years later, she did come to honor our bicentennial in 1976. And really the part that I thought was so funny about that amazing event, it was beautiful. The boards put this amazing tent up in the White House South Lawn because there were so many events and she didn't want the tours to end at the White House. People were coming at record numbers that year with it being a bicentennial. And it just was breathtaking and everything that went into choreographing the queen come and she was in the United States. She actually came um, on her yacht, the Britannia, you know, then came to DC. But at the end of the evening, they went to go have the dance and the president asked the queen to come out from the dance floor. And the military band immediately struck up, the lady is a tramp. <laughs> the president <laughs> joked that he only narrowly avoided a national incident or a court martial. So um, no. that was one of the favorite memories of President and Mrs. Ford as well. So no matter how well you choreograph, you still can't have things happen. That's right. <laughs> that adds to the fun, I'm sure, and to yeah, the nervousness. Exactly. Right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Our, our mutual friend, President George W. Bush, had an interesting encounter with the Queen when his father, as president, hosted her at the White House. Could you tell us, remind us how W. gave the Queen the boot? Yes, that is such a <laughs> wonderful story. And I loved it when you could hear Barbara Bush used to love to tell that story. And it was one of her favorites. And during a lunch before the state dinner, after they had had this wonderful ceremony on the South Lawn, that um, interestingly, you know, lots of times when you think about a state dinner, you do think of that amazing ceremony where they either have a 21 or 19 gun salute and you're welcoming the head and they're still, they're in business attire before the flat tie evening, which actually the Kennedys designed, which is sort of, you know, fun little nod there. But um, 
there was some oftentimes a lunch in between. And so the Bushes had um, Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, to lunch and Prince Philip. And the First Lady was telling Her Majesty that she had put George W. Bush at the end of the table. She thought he was so dangerous. He needed to be <laughs> at the far end. And when the Queen asked why, she had told him that, you know, she wasn't sure what he was going to say. Sort of, Alan, what you were talking about, about if you were to take a child to the um, kids' date dinner. <laughs> and then she had even said that he had threatened to wear his cowboy boots that evening to the state dinner. And she had said that they'll either have Texas flags on them or God bless America. The Queen asked, not who was not yet president, um, obviously, because he was there for his father, but George W. Bush. And he said he was going to wear neither. They were going to say, God save the Queen on him. Um, which was funny about the boot. And then later that evening, when George W. Bush went through the receiving line and he got to the queen, he discreetly pulled up his pant leg to show the queen that they had American flags on him. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> I love it. And I can see him doing that for sure. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, in your book, you talk about one of the, the most famous events at the White House, which was the gala thrown for Prince Charles and Princess Diana in 1985 by, by the Reagans. Could could you tell us about that night? What was the program? Who was there? And of course, many of us remember that famous dance of uh, Princess Diana with John Travolta. How did that happen? Was it planned or spontaneous? And I think everything about that evening in honor of Prince Charles and his new bride, Princess Diana, to the White House is sort of the epitome of a state dinner or state visit. It really sums up the Reagans. I don't think there was really, when you think about the White House and the state dinner today, you have to be so grateful to First Lady Nancy Reagan. When you talk to world-renowned historians like the late William Seale, he would talk about how the President and First Lady Nancy, um, President Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan, they wanted things done right. They would plan it out and execute it perfectly. And this is one of their prime examples. It was a star-studded event. Clint Eastwood, Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant, Neil Diamond, Gloria Vanderbilt, the list goes on and on. And Tom Selleck, the, who was middle of the hit show Magnum P.I., flew in from Hawaii for the evening. First Lady Nancy Reagan had heard that Princess Diana was a fan of John Travolta's. And so it was this amazing, perfectly perfect evening at the White House with dinner. And when they got to the evening, dancing was sort of a signature of the Reagan's events. You would have sort of always at the end of the night had this wonderful dance. Princess Diana is dancing with President Reagan. Um, John Travolta was not in on it. President Reagan was. And Mrs. Reagan went and encouraged John Travolta to cut in, which, I mean, can you imagine how nerve-wracking <laughs> that would be to cut in on the President yeah. of the United States? Right. And he stepped aside. And as soon as Princess Diana and John Travolta went to take the dance, it had been rehearsed. The Marine Band began playing the hit song um, and staying alive. And at the end of the dance, you know, Princess Diana gave a nod to John Travolta, which was very rare for a royal to give a nod to somebody else. And it was just the perfect evening. And the dress has become known as the Travolta dress. It's gone up on auction. And it really is one of those iconic moments of White House history and American history. It really is. It really is very iconic. And uh, also at, at, at Christmas, the White House has many iconic traditions now that the different presidents and first ladies have established over the years uh, but each are different. How do how do presidents and first ladies put their own stamp on the holidays? And I, I know you not only talk about that in this book, Jennifer, but also in your other another terrific book you've written, Christmas at the White House. So how do they make Christmas their own at the White House? And they do well. There's no greater time to visit the White House than during the holidays, especially at Christmas time. It's completely trimmed from the floor to the ceiling. 
highlighting everything that's wonderful about our country. And one of the things that I love about the White House is how much it's really come to symbolize America itself. The home is roughly the same age as the country. And so when we think about different administrations and things that are happening, it's a great reflection as to what was going on. But as you said, each First Lady since Jackie Kennedy really has picked out a theme. You think of First Lady Barbara Bush and you think about her literacy campaign. And so one year she had the White House trimmed, especially that iconic blue room tree, the official White House Christmas tree, trimmed in storybook characters. And everything from that tree itself is a reflection of our country. There's actually a competition nationwide where each state has a winner for the um, to be able to present the Christmas tree to the White House. And each winning state then enters, and that, that winner enters another competition, and that's where they find the winning Christmas tree. Decorators from across the country in every state come on their own dime to come volunteer, help install the decorations that the First Lady will pick that theme herself. It's one of my favorite things. Every time you talk to a First Lady, and it really doesn't matter who they are, when you ask them one of the things that surprises them most, they'll say is just days after the inauguration, they'll have a meeting with the White House florist. And one of the first questions will be, and what would you like the Christmas theme to be? <laughs> and, you know, it's January. and um, You're a little really behind do. in your planning. Right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. I mean, oftentimes first ladies will say they will have already picked out the theme for the following year before the Christmas decorations are installed. It truly is a highlight. But by the Easter egg roll, everything has to be on order. And so I love, again, you think about Nancy Reagan or just say no campaign, her Decor was, of course, classic and is just beautiful. Lots of flock trees. She was famous for wanting more and more Christmas trees every year. And the social secretaries and the White House staff are trying to frantically figure out how many people they could still fit into the White House with that many trees. And, you know, they would have lots of, I love, and First Lady Laura Bush really was saddened after the tragic events of 9-11. As you know, Alan, they really wanted to keep that White House doors open because Christmas really is symbolic when people can tour the White House. First Lady Pat Nixon probably had the largest impact on the Christmas season, and one of her was these White House candlelight tours. And so people would start coming in in the evening hours after work for these candlelight tours, and that tradition continued. And Mrs. First Lady Laura Bush, Mrs. Bush was so concerned about them having to close after the tragic events of 9-11. And so her famous dog, Barney, famously put on that camera, the Barney cam, and would scurry around the White House so that people around the world, not just the United States, were actually able to celebrate during the holiday time to see the White House and learn its history. And I love the way different first families would incorporate tidbits of history in these iconic books. If you go take a tour of the White House during the holidays now, typically you are handed a program or a book that'll tell you about all the decor in each room. And now they will oftentimes include some great tidbits of American history. It is absolutely beautiful. And I will say when I served as director of the Bush Library, as you know, Jennifer, we would have holiday exhibits, Christmas exhibits every year replicating in order uh, the theme they had at the White House. But people were transfixed by the Barney cam. We would always yeah. have that video up. <laughs> and so every, deal. Everything was yeah. beautiful, but the Barney cam was the biggest hit. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. And the day it launched, I think it was the largest, most successful launch of any um, webcam at the time. It was amazing with the amount of views it received. And again, the, just to kind of give another one last nod, I will say to Nancy Reagan, she really did bring Christmas to that level we see today. And um, just sort of reflecting upon some of these questions you've asked, I can't help but really in many ways going back to her, she sort of took that idea that Kennedy's really turned the White House 
to where it was not just the president's home in a museum, but also a world stage. And these state dinners and these holidays and traditions were a way to use the White House as that stage. And she took those ideas and Nancy Reagan really pushed everybody to bring them to what they are today. And I do sometimes think she really unfairly gets criticized for being harsh. When you talk to a lot of the White House executive resident staff and people like Roland Mesnier, who served there for many years, he would say she made her expectations known very much on the front end. So you really couldn't um, fault her for it. But she pushed them. To, he said that he would never have known the pastry chef he could have been without her. And so you think about the Gorbachev dinner or the dinner in honor of Prince Charles and the desserts that were created and all of these amazing things and the way the service was run and the plates were put down and bringing in a new China. I mean, I was, you know, Alan, you laughed about telling your kid if they came, don't break anything. First Lady Nancy Reagan got there and they didn't have enough China for from one administration. You know, she got criticized why she was first lady. But really, one of her first events, the newspapers actually said how creative she was because the dessert plate was from one administration, but the dinner plate was from another. And she laughed. She didn't do it out of creativity. She did it because <laughs> there wasn't enough China. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, they raised private funds for it. But she really got that tradition of having, while many administrations had had China, that she's the one that took the heat of really making it. They needed to order new China quite often, which I'm sure... First Lady Michelle Obama and so many others are now so grateful for that they could have this beautiful China yeah, after she yeah. started that. Speaking of traditions, we spoke recently to Denise Kiernan about her book, We Gather Together, which is all about the uh, the evolution of the Thanksgiving holiday. And of course, part of that in, in modern days is the pardoning of the turkey. I think it started with Lincoln. And it's a lot more complicated than I imagined. Could you tell us about how that pardon is planned and executed, if you pardon the pun? <laughs> I love the pun. It really is only the pardoning of a turkey could take place in the United States, and it'd be such a wonderful, <laughs> much-loved tradition. It is such an American tradition. And the origins are always, you know, a fun one to look at for some of these traditions. Lots of people like to trace it back, of course, to Lincoln, when someone sent him a turkey and his son famously saved it, and it became a much-beloved pet at the White House during the Lincoln administration. But truly, it was George Herbert Walker Bush that is credited for granting the first official pardon. Um, but it really does have great roots where the late 1800s, a famous poultry supplier from Rhode Island, Voss, was known as the Poultry King. And he began sending hand-selected turkeys to the White House. I believe the first might have been um, for President Ulysses S. Grant. But then they kind of developed, of course, like everything does at the White House, is a different tradition where the National Turkey Federation started encouraging Americans to have poultry list Thursdays. They were trying to conserve grain for foreign aid. And of course, you know, the turkey farmers were outraged. You know, how can you have a poultry list Thursday when you think about Thanksgiving's typically on a, you know, or always is on a Thursday, Christmas was. And so they were thinking of ways to make the turkeys famous again. So they started sending these turkeys to the White House. But um, the part that is so great about the turkey pardon to me is what happens today where the National Turkey Federation, the president will decide basically which farm the turkey will come from that's going to be pardoned at the White House. And this isn't any old turkey that randomly gets pulled off of a farm and sent to the White House. They will go through weeks of training. And typically a turkey farmer will take a group of turkeys and they'll slowly windle down what he thinks is the best turkey. And he and his friends and family will spend several weeks picking up the turkey, trying to get them used to cameras uh, being around and taking pictures of the turkey. They'll have neighbors bring dogs to try to get the turkeys acclimated to a secret service dog. They'll put them and have shiny objects put in front of them. 
because one year, one of the turkeys that was being pardoned went for the president's belt buckle. Um, you know, there's all these great stories. So there's sort of like a pet dog that goes through trainings for weeks. And then the turkey and the winning farm will take his turkey and a runner up, of course. And they take him to Washington, D.C., where the turkeys get to spend the night at the wonderful Willard Hotel the night before. And there's all these great um, photos and videos of the two turkeys getting their star studded and welcoming at the Willard Hotel and spending the night in their room before they have their 15 minutes of fame the next day at the White House. And then, Alan, I'm sure you're familiar with the most famous story, of course, is when several people were out on the White House while they were setting up the morning George W. Bush was to pardon his turkeys. And he let the dogs out of the Oval Office, not knowing the turkeys were already loose in the garden. And, you know, the President Bush famously saved the turkeys twice that year because he was the one that had to run outside and grab Barney <laughs> to keep it from eating the turkeys. Early dinner for Barney. That's almost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, those turkeys had no idea how important that training was, you know, like the whole group. Exactly. They didn't know their, their lives were depending on this training. So, <laughs> so. So another holiday always celebrate. I loved when I lived in D.C., I loved going downtown on the 4th of July. There's so much pageantry, the parade, everything, the fireworks that night, uh, just absolutely stunning. How have modern uh, first ladies and presidents celebrated our nation's birthday? Well, there really is something special about celebrating America and um, the 4th of July at the People's House. Heather Cooper, who is a famed florist for several administrations, will say there's no greater amazing sense of patriotism than you will get at the White House on that day. Um, but you sit on blankets in the South Lawn. You get to see the first family wave off the Truman bal Balcony. There's that amazing, incredible firework display over the Washington Monument. And it really is one of the most favorite celebrations of all at the White House. One of the things that I think is so special is that George W. Bush and Nancy Reagan were both born on the 6th of July. So often they would have at a birthday party incorporated as part of the 4th of July. And the Obama's daughter, Malia, was actually born on the 4th of July as well. So of course, for those three first families, they had special meetings to celebrate and would often incorporate much um, of their personal family celebrations on that day as well. Neat. And so I encourage any of our listeners who have not been to D.C. on the 4th to go. Uh, there's so many great things happening there that day. It's just really a lot of fun, and and you feel very pa patriotic for sure. It's amazing. Now, in, in addition to these these annual traditions, Jennifer, you you highlight some of the one-time events that have been hosted by presidents and first ladies, some amazing ones. And given the huge impact the Kennedys had on entertaining at the White House, could you tell us about that amazing dinner they had in 1962 with the Nobel laureates? Yes, well, of course, there's that famous line in American history. I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. And of course, that was President Kennedy speaking at that evening at the dinner in honor of the Nobel laureates. It was all the living Nobel Prize winners in the Western Hemisphere gathered at the White House. And um, it was in 1962. It was one of the many ways in which the Kennedys really did pay tribute to the humanities during their time at 1600. And um, in addition to the Nobel laureates, they also invited other mental giants um, in different fields from science, the one Alan, you're so familiar with, education, government, arts, famous astronauts. John Glenn was there. Poet Robert Frost was there. Catherine Ann Porter. Mary Hemingway, the widow of Ernest Hemingway, was in attendance. And one of the things that I loved about that evening was reading or reading and speaking with one of the people that I feel so blessed to have called a friend was the famed um, Letitia Baldridge. She was the most famous, arguably, White House social secretary and then consulted for many administrations after the Kennedys. 
But she was telling me that the East Wing staff, the First Lady staff, was thinking, oh, my gosh, this event is going to be so boring. All these Nobel Prize winners at the White House, you know, they were thinking it was going to be a quick evening. And as um, Mrs. Kennedy did, they were serving alcohol and they had flowers everywhere and this fabulous music. And it really ended up being this amazing party that everybody loved that went into the wee hours and was written about. And the president and first lady had recently returned from a trip and were tan and just beautiful. And everybody, they would talk, I think a couple of the papers referred to him as people were going gaga, looking at the stunning couple and they were conversing with all these giants. And it was really one of their greatest legacies. You also highlight events that not, were not at the White House, that the presidents and first ladies hosted at other places like Mount Vernon or Camp David or the Reagan and Bush ranches. What factors went into deciding to, to go to those other venues rather than having these events at the White House? Um, you know, that's such a great question that people don't realize. You can have these events outside the White House. I feel like we could do a whole hour on that one question. So let's set up another podcast day. But, um, <laughs> right, you right. know, it's lots of presidents love to host guests outside the White House, not just for a change of scenery, but also to cement these relationships, sometimes in a more relaxed atmosphere. And each, you know, one for be for different reason. President Reagan used Camp David more than any other president. He loved that venue. They were a little bit more protected from the press. They could take long walks and they really would have these amazing events. Others would be because of legend. I mean, Texas has, which of course I'm biased, I'm from, but and Alan, you know so well the, you know, the Texas ranch and um, President Bush's beloved Crawford. You could not, there was not um, anywhere else people would want to go. I loved Mrs. Bush talking about the story that when he invited the president of China, he immediately announced he had been <laughs> invited to the ranch, which I don't think was the original invitation. And <laughs> he, the Japanese Times reporting, hosting a guest at the Texas ranch is considered a show of strong personal ties and carries more weight than a meeting at the White House or Camp David's presidential retreat outside of Washington. And so there really was that when you were invited, that was sort of an extra invitation. It was really solidifying how much you felt close to that foreign head of state and wanted to cement, again, that relationship. But then you also brought up other places like Mount Vernon or, you know, in California, I, one of my favorite events that's in the book is, of course, when we landed on the moon. And um, my generation, we sort of take that for granted is what an amazing feat and accomplishment that was for America. And they wanted President Nixon really wanted to give a salute, not just the Apollo 11 astronauts, but everybody that led up to that amazing moon landing. And so they started off a day event where they started off on the East Coast and ended on the West Coast. So the state dinner, not in just, again, in honor of the astronauts, but the people that worked on it, um, widows of people that had passed away, everybody was flown out to California and they had this amazing state dinner um, at the Century Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles. And I loved reading the Nixon um, Library in California is such a great one to work with. And again, I love Trisha Nixon Cox as a personal friend. I mean, I truly thought my computer was going to crash. They have saved and documented everything and allowed me access to these documents. And you could see all these notes from the Oval Office where President Nixon really even hesitated whether or not he should be on stage because he wanted to, the focus to be on these men and women that have contributed to this amazing accomplishment in America. And 
different events like that. The Nixons also hosted the first major, I think it was the largest state dinner on the White House lawn in honor of the POWs. And, you know, they had all these wonderful people that came in like John Wayne, but they didn't go on stage. They each sat as a guest at each table at the White House. And the POW dinner, the one that made me tear up as much, again, echoing to this house is really the people's house and the president's just a temporary resident. He allowed all the POWs to have free reign of the White House. And they were, they would be upstairs in the private residence. And there's a great story of one POW opening up a door thinking he was just going to take a peek in the room. And the president was trying to finish up some business real quick in a small office. And he said, it's okay, come in. This is, you know, your office, but I'll be out in just a second. And just it, these amazing different events that weren't necessarily inside the state dining room, but in different places, both that are personal to the president, like the ranch or also a hotel or like you said, Mount Vernon, which is, of course, my favorite, the famous state dinner that President Mrs. Kennedy had there. And the best story about that was, you know, they really it's a lot of work to move these events outside of the White House. You don't have all of that infrastructure, if you will, to get everything set up, to be able to serve that many people. And when you have an event away from the White House, you still want it to be at White House standards. And Mount Vernon, of course, that day, they ended up having a horrible mosquito problem that they were not prepared for. And they called in some military aides that immediately started spraying bug spray, which I believe had lots of DEET in it. And the wind had picked up and it blew into the offsite tent where um, Chef Verdon was preparing the meal. And he came screaming out of the tent, the event's over, it's over, I cancel it, I cancel it, bug spray is all over the food, and <laughs> it's not going to taste the way it's supposed to in his wonderful French voice. And Tish told me, Tish Baldr is the White House Special Secretary, she ca- said she called over some military aides, they grabbed a fork, they took a couple bites, they said it tastes delicious, and when nobody, in her words, expired within a few minutes, they said the meal <laughs> is on. And so... um. You know, she the dinner continued and it was wonderful, but it does tell you just a little bit. It's a little bit more trickier. You're taking a lot higher yes, risk when you do these events yeah. outside of the White House. Of course. Uh, w- one last uh, type of event. You, you talk about so many. I, I don't mean to give uh, to, to not give them all attention, but one you talk about are the first children and the marriages that have happened at the White House. Could you could you tell us about the presidential daughter who had the coolest prom and about some of those those wedding ceremonies? And of course, well, of course, the prom, I mean, that just, of course, is Susan Ford and the Ford administration. And I do love when you think about um, the Fords, you can't help but think about how just everyday Americana they were. They were famous for wearing their blue jeans and um, they did so many things like us. I think the first day after he was sworn in, he was still caught in his home picking up the newspaper. And I just love that about the Fords. There was such a reflection and of course, she's the only daughter to have had a prom at the White House. And it was wonderful. She went to her parents and asked. And they said, you know, of course, as long as it doesn't cost the taxpayers anything. So her all-girls school raised money through bake sales and other means to raise the money to have the prom. And they had it there. And it was wonderful. They wanted the Beach Boys. They weren't able to negotiate that. But there was some fun stories from some of her fellow um, classmates saying, that there was strict restrictions on what kind of band they could hire. There couldn't be any charges of crime or drugs or anything. So it started <laughs> to limit <laughs> which bands they could have at the White House. And, and then, of course, you asked about weddings. And in the past sure. 60 years, only two first daughters have actually exchanged vows at the White House. And um, that would be Linda Robb Johnson and Patricia Nixon. Patricia's 50th anniversary just happened. They celebrated at the Nixon Library. And it really, again, was such a reflection of it's sort of that moment 
where you think about, we've recently watched Kate Middleton and um, Prince Harry and all these wonderful weddings with Meghan Merkel take place. And the whole country was sort of holding its breath. Well, that's what it was like too when the first daughters got married. People still will go up to Patricia Nixon today and say, I remember watching your wedding. It was so beautiful. It's amazing. You can still see this fabulous gazebo that was built in the Rose Garden for her wedding at the Nixon Library in California, where it's on display for all to see and enjoy. I, w- I would say just to give a shout out also to the Nixon Library. I've been there many times down in Norberland, a wonderful place to visit, great museum, an amazing archive. So highly recommend it. And they have a wonderful, you too could have a state dinner. They have a beautiful venue you can actually rent out that's a replica there. It really is a magnificent place. Now, Jennifer, you have an obvious passion and knowledge for this intricate art of social diplomacy. You know, it kind of makes me long for an invitation to one of your parties. I bet they're fantastic. (laughs) Probably the hottest (laughs) ticket in Dallas, right? (laughs) Y'all are way too kind. Um, (laughs) But but I do love to throw a good party. And I am known, I do have six full-size Christmas trees up in my house during the holidays. So I do love to give some parties. Yes. Of course you do. I have two that are actually... um, one that is actually truly inspired by the White House in a trip oh. there. So I have an Americana tree. So speaking of that, so let's see if we can get you to give us three of your best tips for throwing a first-rate, first-family-type party in our own homes. Oh, wow. Okay. And you sort of have me there, but three, I will have two things that immediately pop into my mind. The first would be Betty Ford. And she would say, you have to have the right people, the right entertainment, and the right mixture. It's like putting a cake together. And I love in her words that she sort of says that, but I do think she's sort of right. And she famously would talk about how you have to have people being able to mix and mingle and give them things to talk to about. She would love to spend a lot of time on her centerpieces and would do neat things. One time she had a guest that famously loved the West. And so she called the Eamon Carter Museum in Texas and had him spend a whole bunch of Birmingham and Russell's to the White House's centerpieces. She would use different American antiquities to get conversation going. And then, of course, I always even think about good advice for parties. There's no greater person to think about than the great American fashion designer, Carolina Herrera. And we've talked a lot about First Lady Nancy Reagan. And Carolina Herrera would say, Mrs. Reagan knew the essentials of a great party. So I will share those with you. She would say they are great lighting, great flowers, great food, and a great mix of guests, which produced great distinction in American style and glamour. So I would, I can't say I do all that perfectly, but I will always try to live um, up to those. Nice. Um, Perfect. Wonderful. Yes. All right, Jennifer, <laughs> of, of our first five presidents, Washington through Monroe, who would you most like to come over to your house for a dinner party? Oh, wow. Okay. Since it is American POTUS, I will t- <laughs> try to answer the question direct. And I'd be torn between Washington and Jefferson, but I'm a huge fan of Lewis and Clark. I'm married to a ranch broker, so I'd love to have Thomas Jefferson. However, I am a first lady expert. So there would be, if I could pick one, it would be Dolly Madison. There is no um, greater first lady. Some people might even argue that the term first lady came from a eulogy in honor of Dolly Madison. They really were the great first power couple of entertaining at the White House. And of course, you know, Dolly Madison famously saved George Washington. But then I would argue Patricia Nixon famously saved Dolly Madison. The Nixons had the greatest acquisition of the White House, more than 500 different artifacts and famously many of the first lady portraits. So I'd have to defer to Dolly Madison. Good answer. 
All right, Jennifer, we have three dogs in my house, which invariably leads to mayhem and mischief when we have a party. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yes. are there any stories of first pets being bad party hosts, kind of bad dog moments in the White House? Oh, well, Alan knows me too well, and I always would love to flip that and say, instead of a bad host, what about the greatest host? And I would say um, there is no greater champion of White House pets than the famed Springer, Millie Bush, Barbara Bush's beloved dog. There are several photos and entertaining at the White House of First Lady Barbara Bush at a state dinner with Millie, even one during the meal out in the Rose Garden, and she is just perfectly sitting behind, set next to her with Mrs. Bush's hand on her and she and there's even one of her sitting in a chair taking a great picture for her book and um, Millie's book in entertaining at the White House decades of presidential traditions but she really was the greatest first pet she never barked she reportedly walked perfectly behind her so I would say she was a great host we did have That's almost lose a gingerbread house mm-hmm. though once I will answer your question direct slightly and um, the Clintons <laughs> famed beloved Labrador he was coming down to see the Christmas decorations Betty the lab was very young and he immediately made a beeline for the gingerbread house that Roland oh, no. had just put out. And for oh, anyone no. that knows the White House gingerbread houses, they take hours and weeks sometimes to create. So they decided to keep him carefully with the military aid anytime he was downstairs near the <laughs> gingerbread I house. That, I that. understand why I would do that. Yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> for sure. For sure. All right. Now I want to know about the after party. That's where all the real fun begins, oh. right? <laughs> Any stories of crazy after parties in the White House? Come on, Jennifer, spill it. Okay. Spill the beans. You know I will be honest. There were some. The Kennedys had some great after parties where you could go upstairs. But I will be honest. If you wanted a really good party that went late into the hours, the Fords would be your um, choice, mm. possibly. Really? And there was the famous night where President Ford had been in heavy negotiations all day. And most presidents, and I think, Alan, you might even agree that your boss would have probably been quick to go to bed. They were known to not always stay out. But um, Jerry Ford was reportedly out on the dance floor at 1.15 in the morning. He had Pearl Bailey famously dragged him out in the middle of the dance floor. And then the president went and got Betty Ford. And then Pearl got Diane Warwick. The next thing you knew, Fred Astaire was on the dance floor and asking for it was an all night. The next thing you knew, Anne Margaret was dancing with the president. And Pearl Bailey then later grabbed Bob Hope. And um, apparently the president said he didn't want to go to bed. So they might as well just have more fun. And everybody was there till three hours in the morning having a great time. Jerry Ford. That's terrific. I know. um, And so they really did. And then Nixon sometimes had fabulous parties where they sometimes would go upstairs. but They made sure the guests knew that they could stay into the wee hours of the morning. That was a lot of fun as well. Nice. So I will tell you my a favorite event, though, if I'm allowed to share, if there was one that I think everybody would want to go to, it would have to honestly be the 200th anniversary of the White House. President and Mrs. Clinton were the residents at the time at the White House, and they really wanted an event that honored the White House and its historical importance. And the White House, again, you know, it's not just a home, it's a museum, and it's the people's house, and it's an office. And I really think that evening, and that one was just one of those that where you couldn't think of a more momentous um, affair to go to, where you had Lady Bird Johnson, Gerald Ford and Betty Ford, President and Mrs. Carter, President George Herbert Walker Bush, Barbara Bush were all in attendance. And what I think was so amazing is the night of this anniversary, you have in the backdrop the Florida recount. And everyone's on edge in the country. Nobody knows who the next president's going to be. And here you have all of its former 
tenants as they would often refer to themselves, coming back to the White House to celebrate its history and reminding us of what an amazing building this is and how it all unites us. And the event was so amazing. Mrs. Clinton really wanted to symbolize its history and it's also first residence, which was President and Mrs. Adams. I'm kind of going back to your question of one of the first five, who would you want? And they celebrated the kind of food the Adams would have had at the White House. They talked about their centerpieces. And instead of it just being a beautiful display of flowers, they would sometimes, they used some fruits that were available and a rose that Mrs. Adams reportedly loved and had brought back from England. And historical accuracy where the food was kind of echoing some of those meals and the wines. And one of the things I think is really neat, kind of echoing back to this beginning of this interview of who really is at the White House, Alan, and we talked about the executive resident staff, all of the presidents in their remarks talked about those personal memories and paid tribute to the executive resident staff, the White House chief ushers and the cooks and everyone that was there to really make that house a refuge for them and a place of strength for them when they had to be home in the evening. And I just loved that moment. And there was another great scene at the end of the evening, President George Herbert Walker Bush laughed that he had to be overseas. So he gave his apologies and left the event early. And you can watch it, it was all on C-SPAN. I've watched it too many times to admit because it's such a great story. And then you see the president, George Fort Walker Bush, come back into the room, whisper something into President Clinton's ear, his once rival, and they both start laughing. And then all of a sudden, President Clinton gets up and says, well, he was supposed to take a commercial flight and it just got canceled. And he just told me what I have to get ready for because he'll no longer have the use of Air Force One. And I think that's one of the great strengths about our country is these presidents, they're presidents temporarily, but then they're back to normal citizens like we all are. And it's a very special club they all belong to. And I just loved that event. And I think George Herbert Walker Bush talked about Henry Longfellow and his our country's story of destiny and ended the speech with his ship of state and talked about its significance to the White House. And I really just thought that was a beautiful event, sort of symbol symbolizing everything great about our country. So finally, Jennifer, we really appreciate your passion for the historic importance of these gatherings here on American POTUS. It's really what we're all about. In just a sentence or two, can you sum up why you feel presidential history is so important to today's electorate? Oh, if, I mean, there's no important question that anyone can ask. And I think presidential history is part of the strength of our great nation. We are the greatest nation in the world, period. And we will not be able to hold on to these amazing freedoms that we enjoy if we don't know the story of our past. And part of that past is our presidential history. Presidents show us the path forward, both to past to avoid and past to success. And I think because of them and because of these libraries that you all work with and sharing all this great history, we're able to hold on to that. Yeah. You know, speaking of history, Jennifer, one question that came into my mind, and you know, I've been in the White House uh, a few times, and in, no matter how many times you're there, as you walk around, you you, you realize you're in the middle of history. What well, in in your times there? What's been the kind of the most surreal moment where it really hit home mm -hmm. that you're standing, you're standing in a place of uh, amazing history? Oh wow! You know, I I will be honest, and um, I got very spoiled. President and Mrs. Trump were so kind, and when she knew I was writing this book, she really wanted me to have a little bit of a taste to give that firsthand account, so when people could ask questions. And I was lucky enough to attend a black tie function in honor of the White House Historical Association, which we all as Americans need to be so grateful for. They really helped fund the White House so that we can have these tours. And at the end of the evening, I thought it was so great. President Trump didn't get up and immediately go retire to the private residence up on the top floor. He started mixing and mingling with the guests. And it was uh, multiple historians were there and other 
different guests, and a couple of them started asking about the Lincoln bedroom, which First Lady Laura Bush famously restored. And President Trump looked around and had said, have you all not seen it? And when this was taking place, I was actually talking to Chris Comfort, um, Comerford, the White House executive pastry chef, and she saw what was happening on the corner of her eye. And President Trump just grabbed some guests and started taking them upstairs. You could see the Secret Service was like, <laughs> what is going on? And she goes, Jennifer, run, don't walk. I've never seen this before. And so I fought, got, I was lucky to get up there at the very end, tail end. And President Trump took us up in the Lincoln bedroom and knew the history of each piece of furniture in that room. And I mean, I could go, there's so many different moments. I, Christmas is, of course, one of them that everyone can experience. But just seeing that bed, knowing what President Lincoln gave up, knowing that, you know, his child passed away, seeing that copy um, where he hand wrote it and famously he wanted you know, for of his speech and just the room and hearing it from the president. And it's that tradition of passing it along. And presidents really do transcend politics in so many ways. They can tell it, the stories, and they share it and they have pride in it, no matter which side of the political aisle they are on. And even right now, while we're so polarized as a country, it's moments like that, or even our most um, recent presidents can share in that shared history. And then the other moment, which I will say, I really loved so dearly was Trisha Nixon Cox and I spoke quite a bit this past February was the anniversary of the Nixons unveiling the portrait of JFK. And you think about our history and you think about what a tough election that was with President Kennedy and President Nixon. And it was too close to call. And there was a lot in our history that argues about some of the states and some of the ballots. But these were two men that were in Congress together. Trisha told me they were actually close in the hall together. President Nixon, of course, lost to Kennedy. He did not contest the election. And then after he was assassinated, President Nixon was one of the first people to pen and handwrite this note to Mrs. Kennedy. And when the portrait was finished, they invited Mrs. Kennedy to come back to the White House, but they knew how painful it would be for her. And they knew what a media frenzy it would be. And so they offered to do a secret trip to the White House. And President Nixon sent a military plane. He picked up Mrs. Kennedy and her children, brought them back to the White House. Mrs. Nixon and her daughter had brought out some toys and different artifacts for the children to see, let them have privacy as they toured the White House, had them up for dinner in the private residence, let them have time alone with the portrait, and just gave them this magnificent evening at the White House in complete private, then Senate um, helped, you know, arrange for them to get back to New York without anybody knowing until after the fact. And I just thought that really symbolized, it humanizes the presidency, mm -hmm. yeah, which nice. I think oftentimes, and one of the things that I do love that I really try to bring to light, I love all these questions you're asking about pets, because you're talking about having pets at your house and how they can cause mayhem. And the Clintons had a pet and it almost took out a gingerbread house. We need to remember they are human. When yeah, you have yeah, parties and you have an point. accident and something spills, and I love being able to humanize the presidency. And I think you get to do that through entertaining and showing us the fours. When you talk about their great guest list, he was always trying. He's a huge football fan. He was always putting athletes down. You know, the Reagans came from Hollywood. So you would get a sense of some of the things they thought were fun, like having their stars. And you got to you humanize them through these events that I think are so important. Jennifer. You've written so many great books. What's next for you? Oh, you're so kind. You know, we're thinking, I love that you asked those questions about the queen. And we are getting ready to come up to a major milestone for the queen. And so we're seeing if we can get pulled together in time, a book on the queen and um, 
all the wonderful stories of the presidents. I just think that's such a great shared history we have and to get to see it, some of the great stories from her point of view and all the different things. One of my favorite stories that's come up from that is when President Reagan had Prince Charles actually to the White House. They were having a meeting in the Oval Office and the president said, can I get you anything? And he had asked for a cup of tea. And so they brought him a cup of hot water with a little tea bag in it and some lemon. And the president noticed that Prince Charles never took a sip of his tea. And he didn't really want to say anything or embarrass the prince. And so later that evening, I think when lips might have been a little bit looser and they had had a glass of wine, he asked Prince Charles what happened. He goes, well, I didn't know what you're supposed to do with the baggie. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. But, you know, there are some great stories like that. But, you know, if you have any suggestions, let me know. But we do, I do love to bring these wonderful stories. And, you know, truly, too, you were asking so much about I love your last most recent podcast on Thanksgiving, but and you can go from Thanksgiving and the Fourth of July. It's a section of this book, but it really could be a book onto itself and all the great stories that happen during these amazing traditions. I can't re- read whatever you, you have coming out next year. And if I tell you, entertaining at the White House, decades of presidential tradition is just a terrific book. So many uh, great stories in there, amazing photographs. You, you can tell you, you put your heart and soul into it. It's just a really terrific book. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for bringing all these stories for us to enjoy. It's such a treat for all of us to get to hear. Well, we've loved having you we on. Thank, thanks for joining us, Jennifer. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And we just love your podcast. So please don't stop and uh, can't wait to hear what your next one is. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank author Jennifer Pickens for joining us on this episode about entertaining at the White House. More information on her newest book, including a special code to get 20% off, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 60-plus episodes that are available right now in the playlist. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Bill Clinton. Quote, In the short span of 200 years, those whom the wings of history have brought to this place have shaped not only their own times, but have also left behind a living legacy for our own.